Hey everybody, it's Chris. If you're a sports fan like me, or you're just a fan of a great story, you gotta check out Press Box Access, a sports history podcast hosted by Todd Jones. Todd sits down with fellow sports writers who experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past 50 years, and they share some of the stories behind the stories, some of which they've only told to each other. What I personally love are the wild stories that you might not hear so much about on SportsCenter over the years. Like when Indiana-based sports journalist Bob Kravitz recounts the time Bobby Knight showed up naked to an office meeting with him and then banned him from the Hoosiers' locker room for the next three years because Bob wrote a story he didn't like. Or when Alexander Wolfe tells a story about going out on the town in Chicago with Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra in the middle of a Bulls playoff series. Or when Dan Wetzel talks about what it was like to be in the media room when Temple basketball coach John Chaney stormed into UMass coach John Calipari's press conference after a game and threatened to kill him. These wild and fun stories, paired with stories about real sports greatness, you know, like the 1970s Steelers being the greatest NFL dynasty ever, or the legendary rivalry between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and even the impact of protests for social justice issues in sports, make Pressbox Access a show you should check out. Pressbox Access is part of the Evergreen Podcast family, and it's available all the places you get your pods, and you can also find Pressbox Access on YouTube. Go check it out. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, friends. The world got you down. Don't be sad. Listen to $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. $2 Late Fee is the podcast that celebrates the best decade of entertainment, the 1980s. We pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it holds up today. We also interview your favorite celebrities from that era. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Check us out at $2LateFee.com. First-time guest Scott Klopfenstein came in hot for his debut appearance, ready to discuss quite possibly the most heartbreaking casualty of the grunge era. The lush compositions and Willy Wonka-inspired look of Jellyfish lacked only one thing, timing. Had they existed a few years earlier or later, the band's trajectory may have been unstoppable. Instead, they got washed away by a sea of flannel and apathy. Is Jellyfish the baby we wish would come back? Stick around to find out. One hit is all you need to make the money guaranteed. And you can live off royalties forever. And it makes me wonder, is it just a wonder? I'm really excited because I didn't think we were going to get to talk about Jellyfish because honestly, I thought that they'd probably be considered a no-hit wonder. But actually, Babies Coming Back was a minor hit. Just enough 
that our producer, Matt Kelly, allowed it. He gave it a pass, and I'm really glad he did. Did you choose this song because you're a Jellyfish fan? I am a Jellyfish fan. Hell yeah. I remember seeing the video and hearing the song for Baby's Coming Back, and, like, I didn't understand... And I still don't understand. I mean, so this is just kind of a trend th- through my whole life is it's like, oh, I don't understand what everybody was confused about. It was well arranged, well written, well performed, catchy, thoughtful, like and fun. Right. It made sense. It was everything you want. And I mean, let's I mean, that's just the song. And then you go and you go, oh, well, who the heck are these wacky gentlemen? And then you go and you listen to the record and you're like, oh, the whole thing's dope. But because they weren't grunge or hair metal. Here is the problem. This is what I landed on when I was doing the research and looking into some of this stuff is it feels like this band formed because they wanted to create music. I I believe they said they wanted to make pop music safe again, but they wanted to push back against hair metal. The problem was that they put out this song in the early part of 1991, while simultaneously another group of musicians were also working to wipe hair metal (laughs) off the radio, and they would make their appearance just a few months later to also make the world not safe for jellyfish. (laughs) Like it was just the worst timing that they could have ever put out this record. They couldn't have picked the worst time to come out even (laughs) even four or five years later you got presidents of the united states of america and like kind of kind of crazy wacky alternative music even then might have been the right time but this was just the worst timing ever this was at the beginning of grunge well and you gotta i mean like have you guys found doing this podcast that that is so often like the problem like the one thing that winds up being a huge factor in a lot of bands successes is the timing. Like you come out, you know, like, I mean, and to be fair, there are plenty of bands that like who put out music that did smashingly in light of poor timing. Yeah. You know, I mean, wasn't Jay Z's the blueprint. Didn't that get released like right on like September 11th, like when the whole thing happened, you know what I mean? Like, like, so there are things that like, depending on, but especially if you're pushing up against, which we would then see in the second half of the nineties that they were trailblazers Mm -hmm. because the entire seventies queen beach boys, Beatles, all that shit became wildly like they just barely missed it with their second record too yeah which in my personal opinion is one of my favorite records of all Dude, time so i was gonna actually lead with that spilt milk no offense to belly button the album that this is off of but spilt milk was my first it was the song new mistake was the first jellyfish thing oh. i personally ever heard which i still to this day think is one of the greatest songs ever that album front to back's amazing but that song on a musical level the outro of the song new mistake is one of my favorite pieces of music ever written it is it is so amazing and yeah this is all very beatles and queen inspired music but i think to to bring it back to belly button and the timing thing not only was maybe the music not timed exactly right but also their look they came out looking like 
Willy Wonka. <laughs> you know, like, no, no, even, they're not even disguising they're trying to look like Willy Wonka. I watched an MTV News segment about them, which I thought was really cool. It was like an extended Kurt Loder hosted MTV news segment that was like five minutes long. Like, wow, that's pretty cool. They used to do that about jellyfish and literally Roger Manning from jellyfish is licking a big swirly lollipop and they're wearing like cat in the hat hats. They literally talk about Willy Wonka in it. One thing I had to do a little research here is so the Willy Wonka, you know, the original Willy Wonka, the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka came out in 1971 This Belly Button album came out in 1990. So it'd be the equivalent if we came out with a band right now and we dressed like characters in either Kill Bill, House of a Thousand Corpses, or Old School. (laughs) Would be the the equivalent of like our whole vibe and look at the time. So the the style, looking at these guys, I, I feel like I at the time too would have been like, especially when grunge was coming out and you're like oh yeah it's flannels and ripped jeans and looking like you don't care about anything to these like wacky Willy Wonka characters I may have even been turned off by it despite the music but again when we're talking about timing it's like just imagine if it was you know 1994 the exact time when they broke up like I yeah. could see these guys going on tour with Blind Melon and fitting in beautifully. Like, beautifully. like it's it's like they just their career their short five year span was the worst five years they could have picked to be an active band. <laughs> like, they could even they could have even gone out with certain Brit pop acts and stuff like that. Like there was a lot, <laughs> or like you know I mean I think about like Apples and Stereo or any of that Elephant Six stuff like. That was exactly the same thing, just not as poppy. Like it's yeah. like they oh, opened so for the Black Crows, which totally makes sense. <laughs> like, yeah, like for that sure. totally fits. But the here's here's the thing about this band though that I think is cool, regardless. Right? Maybe they never had the mainstream success that they should have deserved, but they got to work with Ringo Starr, Brian Wilson. William yeah. Shatner and appeared on a Harry Nielsen cover album by Harry Nielsen's personal request that they were one of his favorite active bands. So I feel like yeah. at that point, it doesn't matter how popular you are. You are respected by the very people you are like trying to pay homage to. And that sometimes is way more rewarding than if you had like the number one song in America, I think. True. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's a double-edged sword. You know what I mean? Like, or it's it's two sides of the same coin. As I think is more of a a better example of its of this duality. Like because I think, and it, I mean, this is as 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 an artist myself who could be considered a a, a a one-hit wonder. Everyone's always shooting for. I think both sides. You know, it's it's like you the notoriety and the respect of the people who you looked up to and your peers is fantastic. And then to be able to be lifted up by your your fan base as well, right? Yeah. Whereas it's like they never got the the never the twain shall meet for them. You know, it's <laughs> it's like they had the critical acclaim, and but there were like the fans were like, I mean, that I'm sure the fans that they had were 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 go get them. But I mean, like you know who introduced me to jellyfish actually and re brought back like because i got i remember getting belly button as a kid and going okay but the group of dudes who brought me spilled milk were jesse carmichael and adam levine from maroon five wow wow we were on tour together and i i kind of get that 
because that harder to breathe album is ve- like songs about Jane is a very 70s throwback record all things considered yeah, yeah those guys were like you have to check this out and because uh, they're huge queen fans they're huge uh the who fans um but i feel like so we've mentioned queen we've mentioned the who we've mentioned the beatles but when i listened to spilt milk because i listened to it for the first time today when i oh, listened wow. to spilt milk i heard more than any other band super tramp like this yeah. is a super tramp record. If they got it's anything. compared to super tramp a lot. Yeah. Well, I think that that's part of the problem too, right? Like everything that I read, like because I, you know, I went and I read like the Wikipedia and read some other stuff, and I think it's a huge problem with a lot of the music industry just to begin with, which is the comparisons that people make to try to quantify and then categorize what's happening can be the fucking death rattle of any creative force. Yep. Like instead of just being open to it and accepting it for what it is. And then like, as you've like accepted something, you start to break down its components. Like I never listen to something and go, Oh, that's that. And that's that. And that's that. Cause it cheapens the art. Like everything is something. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we can sit and listen to Bjork and be like, Oh, there's some fucking schubert and like you know it's <laughs> i think like, that might be an exception scott i don't know if bjork sounds like anybody <laughs> i'm no she, but that's the thing is that i disagree because remember ever- i texted you that the sugar cubes sounded exactly like the b-52s when i finally listened to no them. fair <laughs> enough yeah yeah but like i mean it's all somewhere you know what i mean and this desire to like that i don't know i mean it's it's kind of human nature as well but uh yeah i feel like every time it was like oh these guys are into Queen when Queen it's not cool to be into Queen. Tell me when it's not fucking cool to be into Queen. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, people people in general need an R I Y L. They need a recommended if you like. It's yeah, just for the right. the lowest common denominator who aren't gonna just check out a band. And there's a few things we gotta talk about with this band that set them apart. And one of the first obvious things is all the members of the band, Andy Sturmer being the lead singer and, you know, writes most of the songs, is a and is the drummer. stand-up drummer. <laughs> he is a stand-up <laughs> drummer and lead singer, and the band stands in a straight line across the stage. And it, yeah. I would highly recommend that people go watch the Jules Holland performance of, I think they played. it's so rad. I think they played the ghost at number one on there. And it's just, every harmony is flawless. Everything is amazing. Yet, I don't, Scott, I mean, you've played, we've both played with a lot of bands in our day. I don't think I've ever seen a band with a stand-up drummer lead singer. Have you? Not a stand-up drummer lead singer, but the drummer for the Violent Femmes. I was literally going to say Violent Femmes was a stand-up drummer for sure. Yeah. Well, I just yeah. I, I just of. went and saw the Eagles too, and Don Henley played a few songs while <laughs> drumming <laughs> and playing yeah. too. So it's not that it hasn't been done, but the stand-up drummer I had never I had never seen. Yeah. I instantly I sent that video last night to my band <laughs> and our drummer Corey and said, "Hey, dude, do you think you could start standing and playing?" He's like, "I'll do my best." <laughs> All right. Well, you know, Chris, I mean- you're doing a podcast with a guy who was a drummer lead vocalist in a very popular local band. Did you stand? <laughs> no, I sat. I sat. Okay. But <laughs> but right. for our, our three months of shows, I taught myself how to sing and drum simultaneously wow. and was bad at both. But I mean, Phil Collins, Phil Collins? <laughs> had Phil Collins done it, you know, it would have been an easier transition. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, he had to sit down and sing. Well, and, and Scott, as a, as a fan of both 
you know, obviously Real Big Fish, but also Littlest Man Band and all of the other solo stuff you're doing. The second that I hit play on Jellyfish, I heard, oh, okay, Huge. I hear so much Jellyfish even in that. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so heady and, and it's got all these different genres meshing together in into these sounds that you're right, like boiling it down to just, oh, they're doing the the classic rock thing is kind of discounting all of the otherness that's oh it's so reductive yeah like it's so dismissive and reductive like what they were doing was bringing a level of musicianship and sophistication into songwriting back into songwriting like i mean because you know it's like okay so in the 90s right we're seeing the end of like the new romantic version like era of of electronic music and like new wave and stuff like that like everything was getting really like we were losing a certain amount of dynamics to music. I think personally, like, I mean, there was a lot of cool stuff happening in alternative music as far as like, you know, the Pixies, but like there was a lot happening on the pop sense of things that there were very few instances in pop music where like dynamic changes and quick turnarounds and like just thought this great deal of thoughtfulness that didn't, always play submissive to the idea of groove right don't break the groove because you might lose people like that's really where i think we started to like jellyfish was like we can set a feel and then do a quick turnaround do some cut time do a place where the drums go away and it's just vocals and then bring it all back like they were they wanted to take people on a journey every single time well, Instead of give people like a piece of candy, you know, and I, it's like, right. I, I'm also, you know, it's like, I'm a Zappa fan too. So it's like, I appreciate the idea of like oh. being able to go somewhere every time you sit down to hear something that somebody made. Let me propose this too. Cause as we're talking about how there's that five year period well, that they were a band, that they were just the, the wrong five year period. And I had this thought running through my head the other day where I was thinking about like, what were the bands whose careers weren't destroyed by Nirvana and grunge? Like who were the bands that had a career in the eighties and continued to have a career into the nineties? And like, you know, like U2 came up as a band in my brain that were still releasing hit records, Aerosmith and then REM. And I feel like if Jellyfish had started at the same time as REM, they would have probably been lumped into like bands that Kurt Cobain was listening to and said like, oh, this is like what is driving this. Because like Kurt Cobain is such a huge REM fan as well. Like it, yeah. Like it, I think that they would have even had a chance of being that cult band that wasn't blowing up yet in the eighties, but like were part of the inspiration for like what became the alternative music scene in the early nineties. But they just. Literally, the time, like we said, the timing was horrendous. Horrendous. I agree with everything you're saying, Scott. They had a lot of dynamics. They weren't afraid to take the listener on a journey. That's something I've always liked about music and strove to write is taking listeners on a journey. Oh, for sure. For I sure. I have mad respect for the songs that put you in a groove and keep you there the whole time. I, I love I love that. 
but Jellyfish were something else. It was an adventure. It's a music. When you listen to Spilt Milk, that album, you're all over the place. You know, it puts me in the mind sometimes yeah. if you listen to Ben Folds. I feel like I feel Ben Folds in that. I feel, you know, obviously Beatles and Queen and everything, but every, everywhere you can go in that album. But another thing that I think they fell victim to is all the hair metal. I'm not a fan of hair metal. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not. It's not my thing. I preferred the... I preferred boys right. to men. I was a little kid, but that was more, I was more into boys to men than I was the hair metal. But the one thing about the jellyfish albums, especially spilt milk was that right. it was very produced. It was very over the top produced. And now when grunge comes along and the Steve Albini produced things, these very stripped down to just rock band arrangements, you know, even though they weren't necessarily a hair metal or glam band or whatever, I think it was just, a complete rejection of all things produced or, you know, it could be argued that jellyfish is almost overproduced. Yeah. The collection of artists that they got together to make these albums. Now I want to name some of these people. First of all, they got this dude. Oh, what's his name? Let me look it up. Jason Faulkner. Well, we'll talk about Faulkner, but no, Albie Galutin, the producer. Oh yeah. Who was, responsible for pretty much every Bee Gees hit song. That's who they brought in. So you have him, and then by, apparently, and this is said about a lot of people, songwriters, musicians, apparently Andy Sturmer was very hard to work with. And by the time, is, yeah. <laughs> by the time Spilt Milk came along, yeah, Jason Faulkner was no longer involved. For anyone who doesn't know Jason Faulkner's music, the dude's like insane. I heard a, an album from like the past, recent years by him that was insane and he was part of a group after jellyfish called the grays where right another person who played on spilt milk which i didn't even know he played on spilt milk until recently john bryan oh <laughs> right yeah but no oh that jason faulkner record it's jason faulkner and r stevie dude Moore, right with the clown yeah. on the cover or whatever has like terrible artwork yeah. that thing is insane just the okay yeah if you haven't heard r stevie Moore, his his stuff Oh my gosh. The only way I can explain him that comes to mind right now is he is like the Daniel Johnston version of Harry Nilsson. Okay, yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, well, I'm checking that out. <laughs> he is uh, hugely influential on bands like Dr. Dog. Mm -hmm. R. Stevie Moore is just this dude who was like, he's like, uh, he had, I don't think he had ever really had a hit, but um, great songwriting, like, uh, really wild stuff, but he would just rent gear and fill his house full of gear and record stuff. Kind of Brian Jonestown Massacre kind of thing. That right. was another band I was thinking about with Jellyfish is that Brian Jonestown Massacre, Dandy Warhol's era, if yeah. they had held out a little bit longer and hopped on that like 60s you know, garage rock throwback, I think they would have fit in. As, again, Every other era, but the era that they put but out music. <laughs> Scott, that that R. Stevie Moore and Jason Faulkner album that that's the one I'm talking about with with another day no. slips away on it. That song where it just, oh my god, every, every the key changes in that song. The way it's just insane. Yeah, it's insane. It's like it's like almost like music nerds music, but somehow yeah. it still has a pop feel to it. Oh, it's so good. But the reason we're bringing this up is because Jason Faulkner was on that, on the belly button album on the album right. where baby baby's coming back is on. And I will say this, I'm going to throw Matt Kelly under the bus right now. He was not impressed with jellyfish. And I'm like, dude, have you listened to spilt milk? Because I could, I could almost see why 
if you were just basing it off babies babies coming back i might think it's it's fluff i might be like yeah that's a good song but it's kind of fluff for sure and i mean and belly button you know like it doesn't start as a banger Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like it's like that that record starts kind of chill i mean you know the man i used to be is 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 a really chill introspective tune right it's not like we're coming out the door rock it's not like spilled milk which is like it gives you this like prayer you know like uh, their own version of prayer by the beach boys mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden right. you know <laughs> which i felt like they were like all okay hair metal here you here you go right. yeah Bam. no my opinion definitely changed upon listening to spilt milk because I, I was like this is fine like i'll never listen to this again then I listened to Spilt Milk, and I was like, I want to listen to this a lot today. <laughs> like, yeah. this is yeah. going to be, as soon as I'm done recording this, I'm just going to listen to more Spilt Milk. I do want to talk about April 6, 1999, specifically. That is the day okay. that the song peaked on the Billboard charts. Sorry, 1991. 1991. Peaked at 60, uh, 62 on the charts. And I also wanted to just double check. September is when Nirvana hits, right? So this mm. is what the musical landscape is in a pre-Nirvana world. Uh, your number one song in America is Gloria Estefan's Coming Out of the Dark. Some of the other songs peppered wow. amongst <laughs> the top 10 is Enigma's Sadness Part 1. Sadness. <laughs> S-A-D-E-N-E-S-S. So I guess that's Sadness. Really? Yeah. It's sad. Uh, it's definitely sad. sad. It's that it's that song goes Sadness. <laughs> well, that's it. It's sad, <laughs> Sadness Part 1. Amy yeah. Grant's Baby Baby, Tesla's oh, Signs, and oh, a, a Chris Fafalio's favorite, Another bad creation. Aisha. But then I tried to comb through the entire Hot 100, searching for anything that would remotely have fallen into the jellyfish realm, which as I kept scrolling, I was like, I'll just take anything that would have been on rock radio or, or you know, whatever. All right. I could find was Divinals I Touch Myself, Chris Isaac, Wicked Game, Queen Strike, Sweet Lucidity. Queen Strike. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i always say that wrong god damn it uh black crows she talks to angels and firehouse don't treat me bad oh <laughs> this song was sandwiched between sheena easton's what comes naturally and cinderella's heartbreak station like this is what the music landscape is wow. in early 1991 i'm saying i'm sorry that jellyfish was a casualty in this but i'm also kind of really glad that nirvana kind of came and cleaned the board off a little bit and gave yeah, us yeah, a fresh shook things up. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's so crazy. Like, and there are like, you know, you were right. Like the, uh, I was, cause it, when I think about, you know, them opening for the black crows, I was like, does that really work? And then you're like, Oh, I mean in that era of the black crows, she talks to angels. Like, I mean that look, that song, whatever is whatever it is, but it, there's actually, it's actually a, good it's a well-written tune I, like i think that that's one of the i'm not the biggest black crows fan but i think that that no. is a very good song it's a well-constructed yeah. pretty song i mean flaming lips wouldn't the flaming lips and jellyfish be the oh my that's god the that's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. when did they hit oh 80s yeah they were an 80s oh, band really? but she she don't use jelly was like 94 or 95 like they were another that's all they had to do yeah. jellyfish just had to hold on they just had to hold on <laughs> until she don't use jelly hit and then she, you know, she don't use jellyfish. They, they were they were right in the door. They needed to just hold on a little bit longer. That's it. I know. I mean, it's like I could have seen them with a band. I mean, I could have even uh, on a stretch seen them with Ween. You Dude, know what I mean? Like, yes. <laughs> though Ween was far more chaotic and 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 bombastic and off the wall. Like there was still that 
ween fans have a sensibility of open a sense of open mindedness i mean you have to uh because you never know what you're gonna get after 94 there were so many opportunities so many possibilities i mean what was as the flaming lips i mean what would have been the album that came out in the 90s for them i mean early 90s for them when when they dropped belly button uh they put out in the priest driven ambulance for the flaming Mm. lips Okay, um, and yeah. then hit to That's death early. in the future head in '92, and then after they broke up is when they put out transmissions, transmissions from satellite from the heart. Satellite heart, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Transmissions from the satellite heart would be the 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 one that would be. I mean, though, again, that that's that, you know, and again, like transmissions from the satellite heart, though, I think the songwriting would have been complimentary. The production style and approach is, again, a lot more raw, a lot more uh, uh, lo fi. And so would have been a bizarre juxtaposition just sonically. Well, in that time it's only those few years that 91 maybe 92 93 when the whole the seattle grunge bands were hitting it was after that it was like a major label crazy for any weird band i mean you're you're talking about the time where you know think about 120 minutes at that time when bands you brought up ween chibo motto yeah you know all all these like real everyone was trying to replace kurt Kurt cobain they were trying to find kurt was gone and they had a kurt shaped hole and every record label was trying to find the like next the next nirvana but it allowed for weird music and scott it's almost like it led to you know the ska boom of the of the 97 98 it even it even led into that you know it was different (laughs) it was different sounding and fun you know, bright. I, I associate bright colors and stuff with that time. Think of that jellyfish. You know, same kind yeah. of thing. What we're talking about, right? Like in my brain, it's it's Kurt Cobain dies in '94. All these record labels try to find the next Kurt Cobain, which means that we have this over influx of just moody, depressing music. So of course, when all of a sudden you've got like sell out bam like like you have like this oh, yeah. upbeat happy thing which is the opposite of what is the only thing on alternative radio at that time of course there was going to be this huge flip and people being like oh you know what like maybe i want to be happy for a little bit and like let's not forget the fact that as i i think we talked about on our real big fish episode and and i've definitely talked about on other podcasts like just because ska music sounds happy doesn't mean that there aren't like some heavy ass topics and some really depressing Absolutely. moody shit in there too. Absolutely, it's just the veneer of happiness with the music. Yeah, but it wasn't just ska. I mean, Scott brought up Ween. Yeah, I mean, Push the Little Daisies was obviously like the the Beavis and Butthead put Ween on the map song. But it's it's just there was so much weird indie. By the mid '90s, by the time the Seattle thing calmed down a little bit, and it was kind of like everywhere, and just alternative music was just weird, and and you know, yeah. you brought up Presence <laughs> United goes. States. They're a great one to throw in there too, because they were just great example. so weird and out there. Yeah. yeah, I mean the Butthole Surfers, like sure. we're we're on the radio. I mean it's it was amazing. That I mean, I I almost feel a little disillusioned as a kid. I really de- dove into, um, well, and I guess now, I mean, early, uh, early nineties too, but it's like, there were things like, you know, bands like Ned's atomic dustbin and yeah. things like that. that Two like, bass players. <laughs> yeah. You know, that allowed for 
some forward movement into interesting things. Mm-hmm. And then all of us, and then somewhere in the nineties, uh, that the industry just gave up on interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and has never, has never really come back. I mean, I feel the industry hasn't exactly come back, but the, the, through the, 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 grace and uh mixed feelings of the of you know the internet and things like that people have been able to create more of what they actually want and need uh without the good graces of and so the industry has had to to change but that's that's a further conversation and and jellyfish unfortunately i mean what i mean they talked about uh the thing that i read they did a uh a, a limited run box set of like all of the like everything they could get their hands on of jellyfish and they only made 8000 of them and they sold out like very quickly. Yeah, they have a cult following for sure, but there's something you know, after the breakup of the band which you know, they did over over the phone Andy Sturmer and Roger Manick. I think they, this is done. <laughs> I yeah, was thinking yeah. the same thing. Yeah, yeah, right. And they broke up, but where Andy Sturmer went is insane. I never put the two and two together. All I know is that some point in the past decade, maybe longer, I heard Puffy Amiyumi's joining a fan club, and I was like, "Holy shit! How is there a Jellyfish song? How?" And it was just this hyper pop, you know, version done by this Japanese pop group, and I was like, "How is this possible? How did this happen?" And then. You know, in researching this, it's like, oh, that's oh. what Andy Sturmer did. He wrote uh, he wrote for them, and then he wrote for a lot of Disney and Cartoon Network shows. I think yeah. that's where his career went. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm not going to lie here. I've become a factor fanatic lately. I'm a busy guy, and getting to eat restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat in two minutes has been amazing. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You have 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. I've been spreading the word to everyone I know, not just here on the podcast, but in person as well. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. You get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And the math doesn't lie. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Plus, considering every meal is dietitian approved, it's also nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today by heading to factormeals.com slash one hit 50 and use the code one hit 50 to get 50% off. That's code one hit 50. The words one hit and the number 50 that is at factormeals.com slash one hit 50 to get 50% off. Hey, do you have an idea for a podcast, but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. 
From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, we know podcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. Apparently, he's still very elusive. He doesn't really do interviews, doesn't talk much. I, I don't know. I haven't. I wasn't able yeah. to uh, confirm that. I haven't seen anything recent with him. But yeah, it seems like he had a cool, successful career after that, probably making enough money from that that he's like, ah, screw it. I don't need to... I don't need to release music to try to be famous that way anymore. Yeah. I mean, and it's a, you know, cartoon music. It's a good, it's a good gig. You can get away with a lot in cartoon music. I think a lot of the people who do the cartoon music are, I feel like they want you to be weird and wacky, right? Like you have to match the vibe of the show. So they don't want like just a simple four, four, like toe tapper. They want you to get out there and strange. Yeah, I mean, what's his name from Shudder to Think does, you know, like scoring and stuff like that, too. Craig, right? Craig? I don't remember. But I know Jeff like, Rosenstock does that. Jeff too does. For, yeah, Jeff yeah. does uh, uh, Craig of the Creek. I tried to do that. I'm not very good at it's it. It's definitely a skill of its oh, own thing. It's yeah, a I mean, wild. It's a whole it's a whole thing. I, I don't do well with making things that blend in. I don't play nicely with anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's that'd be hard. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, another thing, you know, a couple other little things that may not have helped <laughs> Jellyfish. They were recording Spilt Milk in L.A. during the L.A. riots. That seems like a bad omen in itself. Yeah. Like, they're literally in L.A. recording during the L.A. riots. And that album, when Spilt Milk came out, which, once again, if anyone here listening hasn't listened to Spilt Milk, oh. after you finish this episode, just put it on. By the end of it, you're going to be like, oh, my God, how did I never hear this before? But, like, put it on... I recommend you find yourself a high-res, like, lossless version of it. This is a truly incredible piece of production. Mm -hmm. The arrangements are unreal. Like, they are so thoughtful. The performances are fantastic. Their ability to create melody and counter-melodies and their counterpoint, I mean... We're we're working with strings and 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 harpsichords and like the instrumentation is is unbelievable and it's all practical. There's no like sequencing or and it's it's astounding and it is beautiful and you don't hear records like this anymore. I mean, I think about some of my favorite records of that were that remind me of a certain type of sensibility as this. So I, th- uh, the one thing that comes to mind and something that was wildly influential on me too, was, uh, like Jeremy Enoch's return of Ooh. the frog prince. Okay. Right. Which again, you're talking about strings and harmonies and all sorts of stuff, but not to the, deg- like, I don't know anything of the nineties that went to the lengths to create a sonic soundscape as rich and beautiful and joyous you know i mean because it's like one could say that like okay computer i'm not that's an incredible piece of music it's the but joyous no i don't know (laughs) that that it is not that that it is not it is those are two albums that i recently scott got airpod pros my friend johnny hooked me up with airpod pros and i had never listened to music through those before yeah and now these are two albums that i want to listen to through those and and experience them that way yeah but realize also though with airpad because i have the pros as well you're still gonna lose a little bit just because bluetooth is not the greatest way to transfer Mm. music so you really gotta listen hard i mean 
I have a pair of expensive studio mixing headphones that when I really want to go somewhere, I'm in my office, I have the flack files, I sit down, I you know, plug it in, I you know, put on I burn some incense. There you go. Put on my, <laughs> Set the I mood. put on my lights. I close, you know, <laughs> my dog curls up on my lap and we, j- and I just like go, you know, yeah. because it's like this record is really like, cause I mean, it was something that we were always trying to capture too. Cause we were uh, uh, like when we did, why do they rock so hard? Ooh, Jellyfish yeah. was a hugely influential band in that for us. Yeah. And so we were like how more harmonies and more interesting instruments and stuff like that. Um, to try to capture, and it's some yeah, trying to get that thing where it's like somewhere between the 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 raw punchiness of the grunge sound with and the the beauty of like a glam rock pop sound. I don't know that anybody has ever done it to my satisfaction, yeah. but I'm an old I'm an old I'm, person. We got to stress we're talking about spilt milk here. This is yeah, spilt not, milk. This is not the not the album that the song we're talking about. Right, is right. On. Sorry, the I know we're that, barely that, talking about, but that that's one, fine. That one is that one's <laughs> fine. That one is fine, but we're talking about the album after that, Spilt Milk, which is a Which is crazy because of the fact that the album that they had the hit on was not their greatest one. Like, No, not at all. Oh, it's so frustrating. Well, so I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to think of like, what are some albums that, that kind of hit that same vibe that you're talking about where it's like, it's beautifully produced. It's got all these layers. It's taking you on a journey. And like you said, the element of joyfulness. And this is going to sound wild. But two albums came to my mind by the same person, two separate bands, same person, would actually be the format's dog problems and the first fun album, Aim and Ignite. I feel like Nate was very focused in like bringing in like lots of orchestration, horns, yeah. like this, specifically the title track, Dog Problems, like that that fucking feels like an all you need is love era Beatles song with like, very true. Like it's like, he was really trying. I don't think he succeeded nearly to the level that spilt milk is, but that's honestly the only thing I can think of over almost a 20 year period. I could, that even I could think of one that just came out. I could think of one that came out in the past two months. All right. Oh, and, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> and, and Scott, if you haven't heard this album yet, this new gang of youths album, Oh, dude, if you haven't listened and experienced that thing yet, I think it's one of the best albums ever, but it's everything. It's everything we're talking about. The orchestrations, the, the, just the, the journey it takes you on. You know what? I I saw an article on gang of youths and I'll be honest. I think they're picked the picture of of them. I was like, no, 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 don't judge (laughs) them. They're amazing. They're unbelievable. Believe me. Yeah. Yeah. They might um, be wild looking, but they're, they're like Australian. Cut them, cut them some slack. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh no no it's not okay this is something else but this is oh great no because i typically i always love the Me australia too, man australia comes we've hard. been talking about australia it dude it comes hard in recent years australia <laughs> every New Zealand, time. man that band the beths do you like the beths yeah the dude, beths are great hiatus coyote i want to say every one hit wonder that we've talked about that came from australia by the end of it we're like this band should have been huge like scott are are you i mean my favorite artist of all time and i'm only i'm only bringing this up because she's another one that you could very easily several albums specifically to me vespertine but are you a big bjork fan love love bjork i think that vespertine album is like a perfect like just the orchestral arrangements and the the 
Inuit singers and the the Matmos stomping on ice <laughs> to create yep. a beat and stuff. It's just it's all insane, you know. It's all. I mean, yeah. the one I keep going back to, uh, surprising because I love Vespertine, is just for its pure like ingeniousness. Is that a word? I don't know. Sure. Is Medulla, dude? That. I mean, that's the one I think that's the one that reignited my love because I watched like a documentary about the making of it and seeing Rozelle and Mike Patton in there. And it just that that reinvigorated. I already liked her, but that's like that's when I became obsessed. That's when I I have to own everything Bjork ever did on, you know, every live DVD, every record, every, you know, every B-sides remix album. That's when I became that's when she became my favorite artist. Yeah. I mean, there's a challenging there's some challenging songs on that though (laughs) i mean and that's always like and that's i think how i was lucky enough to find and be open to jellyfish when they came about and i'm always down for the challenge like i want to find i always want to find something i don't understand me too man right like i i am not a passive music listener i want to be assaulted i want to be made uncomfortable I want, I want to be, you know, like, and I mean, every, you know, like this morning I put on, on the new, uh, uh, the weather station, um, the one that's all just mostly piano, you know, cause it's like, we're getting the morning going and stuff like that, but like getting lost in her lyrical content, you know, like I want something when my first daughter was born, my wife would come home often and I was doing some, you know, we were like, I was stay at home dadding and I would put on, uh, do you know the record pillow wand? No, it's Nels no. Klein and Thurston Moore and Ooh. just their guitars. Huh. And it's just them improvising in the studio. It is <laughs> the best. And it's sometimes it's noisy and crazy. And then they click into something and it's j- just brilliant. Mm. Um, but like she'll come home and it's like, <laughs> and it's me and my child and my child like passed out. And, uh, and she's like, what is happening here and i was like i don't know this is and it kind of explains uh why my eldest is the way she is you know yeah like i want and i feel like that's even that first jellyfish record you know belly button is a challenging listen it demands to be sat and listened to it's got some great pop moments on it great pop moments on it it has some unbelievably endearing lyrical content introspective and vulnerable you know they talked about you know at a certain point what was it roger manning just all of a sudden wanted to be leonard cohen but um <laughs> no it was andy it was andy Starr. Oh, it was andy just, that's right yeah, andy wanted roger to, be wanted to keep it he wanted to keep it like yeah. brit poppy or whatever but like yeah you hear like the the poetry and the vulnerability and the fear and the anxiety that andy was going through like and he wasn't as much as he didn't like being a lead person he never shied away from putting his heart on the table for everyone to see some so as you're describing that i'm thinking of yet another band that if they had just held on a little bit longer probably would have became their musical peers but like all the ways that you're describing belly button is how I've described electroshock blues by the eels to people oh, where it's just what like, a great record. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, this is just a heartbreaking personal album that has so much incredible production going on it. And somehow while it's being the most depressing shit you've ever listened to ends on like the most hopeful song for the future that's like ever been recorded. Like it, that is another journey one where if you just listen to those songs 
as themselves, you don't hit, it doesn't resonate with you the way that if you like actually right. sit there and start with Elizabeth on the floor and ends with PS, you rock my world. You're like, okay, I, I get what the, this is just a, a dude's documentation of the worst year of his entire life. Yeah. I mean, when was that record? That was uh, 96 Six, and 96 again. If he 96, just held out which, where we also had, uh, we also had the software slump, right? Yeah. By granddaddy. Yeah. It's like a weird, like suicide note from a friend. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, well, and I think again, if, if, it's amazing how important we all talk about it, but I don't know if we can even quantify it, how important Kurt Cobain was. Kurt's death in 94 made people open and to a certain a great amount of things that happened over the next four to five years in music, you know, some some real darkness, not just anger. But real darkness, but talking about suicide in a way that was largely vulnerable, because I feel like there were a lot of situations or just death in general that people were willing to not candy coat the idea of loss. And I mean, how many heroin songs were there that never sounded like it was a fun time? They were yeah. they weren't writing about, you know, you don't listen to those early Alice in Chains albums and think, man, these guys are having a blast with this heroin. <laughs> like it's like yeah, right? pleas for help <laughs> in song. Like Yeah. Like, well, Matt, we've heard a lot of uh, upbeat heroin songs though. <laughs> keep in mind that keep in mind that cracker song. Remember oh that yeah. Low song? Or, yeah. Uh, low is uh, low is pretty is upbeat. It low? I think oh, okay. so. <laughs> There's that 1975 song that sounds like a love song. Anyway, we're, I guess. Well, we're... I mean, Needle and the Damage Done is kind of upbeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, people make happy songs about it, too. So I do want to bring up one last thing actually tied to the song. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, sorry. but in in 2007, in a very weird full circle kind of way, uh, there was a power pop group from England called McFly who most people don't know unless they watched a really bad Lindsay Lohan movie starring them. But they're actually a really good power pop band. But in 2007, they covered Babies Coming Back, and it became a number one hit in the UK. So Jellyfish couldn't get this song past 61 on the US charts. But when that pop influence went back to where it came from in Britain, they were able to get that number one hit somehow. Wow. <laughs> well, how did Belly Button chart in the UK? I, that is, did it do better than it did in the States? I'm sure it had to. <laughs> it had to. <laughs> like, everything well, over there does better. I mean, not everything, but they're so much more open-minded. Well, the and thing I feel I, like Spilled Milk did better over there, too. I saw Spilt Milk in the United States peaked at number 165 on the building. In, yeah, in the UK, it was 21. Not very good. <laughs> 21. <laughs> Um, and um, then, yeah, on the UK, yeah, it did chart a little bit higher. It charted at 51, but they had seven songs chart in the UK charts versus the one in the States. So, you know, they were they were a modest success in the UK at the time. Their biggest hit was The King is Half Undressed in the UK. Which is a good song. Hey, we, we on Spilt Milk, too, we got to touch real quick on John Bryan was involved. Oh, lot, yeah. A lot on Spilt Milk album. For anyone who's not familiar with John Bryan, he's like, I don't know, probably one of the greatest musical minds of our lifetime, I guess you, you, you he could is. say. He was yeah. largely responsible for, okay, can't I can't say that I like Kanye West anymore, but Jesus Christ, that late registration album is 
was great. one of the greatest albums of all time. And yeah. John Bryan had a very large part in, in that well, album. Yep. I mean, I, when, when I think of John Bryan, I also think of his film scores, yeah. where he came in yeah. and did the scores for Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, I, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I Heart woo! Huckabees, uh, <laughs> Lady Bird, and the new Christopher Robin movie from like 2018. Like, wow. very just nice, laid back, moody piano. There's. There's a 26-second piece of music that he did for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that for years was my most listened-to piece of music, which was Elephant Parade. Just stunningly gorgeous. Have either of you had a chance to see him live? Dude, I've heard that... I've heard about these shows that he would play all the time. I guess in LA, where he would just people just yell out any song and he would just play it, right? So yeah, so he came to New York one time. My wife and and a friend and I went and saw him, and it was hands down probably one of the top five musical moments, not performances, moments of my life. Yeah, he builds. He it's just. Hit a stage and a bunch of instruments all mic'd up and him. He built tunes by himself and just, and then did grooves and wrote things and did all the stuff and then played his own stuff, which was dope. And what's the Beatles song? Real animal alive and light downstream. It is not dying. I always forget oh, the name. Oh, um, Tomorrow Never Knows. Tomorrow Never Knows. I love that song. He built that tune by himself. Even the pew, pew, the seagull yeah. thing, he did that. Um, and then he does this thing, and he did it a few times. I think he did it three times, where he just goes, call out three songs. Oh, yeah. And two, and a musical style. And it was like, I can't even remember what he did, but it just random tunes, and he calls them out, and they call out a, a musical style. And then he does a, like a mashup of the three songs <laughs> at the same time moves through all their parts and like in this musical style by himself. And it's like, you're like, Oh, you can do anything. Cause he sees the matrix. He just, he's so good that he's like, he can take a song, break it down into all of its parts. You know, it's like, he's like a chef. That's like, I know how to cook so well that if you ask me to make a souffle, I can just do it from memory because I know everything that goes into it, you know, like, you know, and, and so it, you just, I just sat there mouth agape at the true, I don't like to use this word, but the true (laughs) genius of John Bryan. I mean, the sadness that I experienced when, because have you heard, I mean, we, again, this is, this is, this was about jellyfish, but Fiona Apple, which Mm. he was famous for doing when the pawn. Yeah. Yeah the production there. And so there is a version of ex- the album Extraordinary Machine that John Bryan did the whole record. I have a copy of that record. It's the entirety of the Extraordinary Machine record and it is amazing. And that's not what was released. You're saying that he No. He produced no. it first or something? He produced the entire record. The record was completely recorded and not mixed. Huh. And somebody said, no. Wow. And so Fiona said, okay. 
which was surprising. Um, and I think there's only two songs on the what was released as Extraordinary Machine. I mean, the, the title track, Extraordinary Machine, and then something else possibly that he that they kept what he did. And wow. the rest of it was produced by a pop, by some pop guy. I can't remember. But it's like I don't. And 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 ex, the, what was released of Extraordinary Machine is I mean, the songs are great, but the production's not my favorite. But if you hear this, you can find it online, I'm sure. It is, it's just breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah, I checked. And, uh, the wiki has it listed as uh, the bootleg release. And the point of all this, if in case we lost any listeners with this, the point of all this <laughs> is this guy that we've been ranting and raving about for the past six or seven minutes, he's also involved in, in jellyfish. the spilt milk, in the, in the jellyfish camp. I mean, yeah. Jason Faulkner... Uh, John Bryan, you got this Albie guy who produced all the Bee Gees hits. You got Andy Sturmer and Roger Manning who are badass. Phenomenal songwriters. It, yeah. it is just a, the collaboration of all these musical minds to create this musical journey that's, that's still very catchy and poppy and happy and joyous, as Scott described it. I mean, at the end of these episodes, we always decide, hey, did this – song or this artist bring the one hit thunder or was it a one hit blunder i mean <laughs> i don't think we've don't, ever had less of a, des a need to ask this question yeah i mean i think we, <laughs> well matt i would say Sinead o'connor nothing compares to you we we didn't need to we didn't need to discuss that at all <laughs> uh we we knew that was thunderous but oh um but yeah i mean i think it's pretty obviously thunder i mean I, the only blunder is they didn't keep being a band but obviously everyone was successful in their own ways yeah Timing blunder. Timing. It's timing. Blunder. Well, and it's like, what's the thing that they say that luck is like preparation meets timing? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yep. And they had the preparation. I mean, they talked about, you know, and everything that I've read, they said, you know, they, the demos that they made were what was recorded. Like mm -hmm. these, they took the meticulous time. These were no slouches. These weren't dudes who relied heavily on a producer coming in. And, you know, these weren't cats that were like, oh, we're, you know, we need our, our, our George Martin to teach us, you know, how orchestrations work. They knew already. They knew right. how arrangements work. They were on the money. Right. It's just they, 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 this weird window of time when like, what they were doing. I mean, cause I think, yeah, if they had been earlier, they would have been successful. Had they been later, they would have been successful. It's a cruel world. Yeah. Go watch their Jules Holland performance and, and you'll see, I don't know, man, you know, the last thing I would leave us with is can a band with a stand up, <laughs> a stand up drummer lead singer. Would it ever have happened? Would, would they have needed to like get a drummer? Okay. Andy, you could be the front man. Get, we'll get a drummer. Could that have been a problem? Yeah. I mean, maybe he would have stayed the drummer if he had played laying, sitting down. Like if that was his <laughs> issue, if he didn't like being the front man, then sit down and sing. Like yeah. that's what the, what's his name from uh, slow gherkin did it just fine. Yeah. Yeah. So that maybe maybe that's the one question is could a, could a band with a stand up lead singer drummer become famous, yeah. but otherwise jellyfish thunderous. Thunderous. Yeah. And, and one last thing, you know, Scott, at the time that we're recording this, you just celebrated 200 live streams. Uh, where can people go to check out all the stuff you're doing right now? Yeah, we're, I'm doing a lot on Twitch. Go to twitch.tv forward slash Scott Kloppenstein, which we're do we we uh, I stream every Tuesday and Friday at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you go to scottkloppenstein.com, we have a bunch of shows coming up. Uh, I put together I've I've rejoined. Well, I'm restarting my 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 
a pr- an old band of mine called the Littlest Man Band. And we're doing shows. Uh, we have a show in Scottsdale, Arizona on June 11th at the Pub Rock Live. We have a show in Seattle at the High Dive on July 8th. And then at the House of Blues in Anaheim on July 15th. And there's more shows coming. And then I'm currently finishing up uh, mixing two songs that we're probably hopefully going to be releasing in the next month or so. Uh, and going back into the studio to start recording some more tunes. Just busy, busy, busy. I'm a, I'm a busy little, I'm a busy boy. Nice. And you can find me at Scott Kloppenstein on Instagram and Twitter and the Facebooks and the... I, I, I'm supposed to be doing TikTok, although it's I say it, I don't like it, but it's actually just intimidating. <laughs> you can <laughs> I'll do be it. honest. I'll be an honest old, du- you know, you 45 year old man is it's like, it's scary to me. <laughs> what it is, is, though, is it's like I'm like, I don't I, it's there's so, you know, it's it's I, I also like I just got a new dog and she and I are <laughs> like she's she's everything I focus on right now. My kids are even like all you love the dog more than not that my kids like hang out with me. They don't want to spend time with their dad, (laughs) but they're like, oh, you spend more time with the dog than us. And I'm like, you have been blowing me off for years. (laughs) Don't get weird. TikTok loves some dogs. You can you can combine those two loves and you'll be fine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. just shots of my dog and a filter and some music. Yeah, yeah, I could be huge. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Fafalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah, and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me, you're hearing Green Hills off the Punchline album Thrilled. Visit punchlion.com for merch, tour dates, and news. Do you want to start a podcast? Then contact Chris and myself at weknowpodcasting.com for how we can make your show sound as professional as possible. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app, and tune in next week for another episode of... One hit thunder. The string. Nothing's ever gonna work out quite the way you think that it's gonna work out. Nothing's ever gonna work out quite the way you think. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason, and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezak, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriol, Jimmy G. from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions, lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun.